So let's get to James chapter 4. We've been in the letter of James, which is toward the end of your Bible in the New Testament, and it's a letter that James was writing to encourage people to live their faith. You see, we take for granted that Christianity is just something we think we can believe. We can just check off a few boxes and say, oh, it's good, I'm done. But James, who is functioning as everybody's mentor for an everyday faith, says, no, 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 Christianity is not just something to be believed, but to be lived. Because what transforms our neighborhoods, whether it's the rock or your family or your relationships, is not the theory of Jesus but the power of Jesus and getting Jesus embodied in the way of Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves. So he's encouraging people to live your faith. So that's the series we've been in, and we're rounding out the end of it as we begin in James chapter 4. So before we read that, I want to tell you some breaking news. And I promise you it's not about politics or Donald Trump. But I want to tell you some breaking news. Y'all ready for this? Christians can be mean to other Christians. Are you shocked right now? If you're not shocked, you've been like me and you've been around churches for a long time and the sad tragedy is if you've been around a church, you've been hurt by church folk. Sometimes intentionally, which is tragic. Sometimes unintentionally, which is human. But Christians, church people can be mean to other Christians. And I wish it were breaking news, but it's just not. And I think about this as I've looked at this passage this week, and I've thought about how Christians can relate to other Christians. I think of a man that I knew uh, at a coffee shop. When our church met in Plano, uh, Pastor Bud, myself, Pastor Drew, we would regularly go to a coffee shop in downtown Plano, and we would meet another pastor. He was there like all the time. If y'all don't know this, y'all wonder what I do during the week. A lot of pastors are in coffee shops. That's just what they do. I don't have an office, so I'm just out and around, okay? If I'm not with one of you, I'm at a coffee shop. So this is what we were doing, and this pastor was doing the same. And so every time we would see him, we would shake hands, we would exchange small talk, We were friendly with one another. He was a pastor in a city in the area for another denomination. He since left the state. But every time we would see him, he would always, always, always steer the conversation toward theology. And so what would happen is every time we would careen into a theological conversation, it would not take long for him to pick out some disagreement with us. And one time, I'll never forget this, we started talking about my view of women in ministry. And he told me, spoiler alert, I believe that women uh, can fully participate in God's kingdom as pastors and deacons and teachers and these things. And he told me that my view was based on a lie from Satan. So that was tough. And one time I remember we were outside, this was another week, and We began talking about another theological issue and a scriptural interpretation. And he said, ah, yes, 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 yes. And I said, what? He goes, that's it, what you just said. I said, what? He goes, that's exactly why we condemn the Anabaptists. I was like, oh, so so like me, if you look on our website, we kind of have a flavor of theology called Anabaptists. It's not anti-Baptist, it's Anabaptists. And he said, that's why we condemn the Anabaptists. I said, what do you mean? Well, I mean, if you, if you believe this, man, you're headed straight to hell. And I said, well, 
you're talking about me, right? He goes, yes. I said, and you're smiling. And he goes, well, I mean, yeah, you should change your view, man. You're going to hell. And I was like, dude, well, I got to go, so see you later. <laughs> what do you say to this? Christians can be mean to other Christians. I don't look back. It didn't scar me. I don't want to tell you the stories of church folk who scarred me tonight, but I want to tell you that Christians can be mean. Why? Because we disagree. Christians can be mean because we disagree. Do you see Christians being mean to other Christians on Facebook? Shake your head yes. If you're not on Facebook, God bless you. You might want to stay off it if you've made it this far. Do you see Christians being mean to other people, other Christians in the news? Yes, 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 yes. Why? Because we haven't arrived. All of us are on a journey. And all of us, as we talked about last week, we're not our opinions, we're not our theories, but we are a sum total of our experience, and sometimes hurt people hurt people, and Christians can do likewise. So what we see tonight in James is how a Christian community can be ripped apart if we let our disagreements divide us. We see how a Christian community can be ripped apart by teachers and leaders and people who put their desire for power and influence and control before their desire and command to love their neighbor as themselves. We see a Christian community ripped apart. What we see in James chapter 4 is the culmination of all the sickness of living out of sync with our faith that we've seen in the first three chapters, and we see what we get is a community at war with itself. So we're going to see what it looks like when Christians are mean to other Christians. Then we're going to see James really drilling down and seeing why is this happening. And he's going to talk about this word friendship. And that is if you are being friends with the world, it is going to put you at enmity with God and others. So then we're going to work our way down to the end of our time tonight, and we're going to see James's call, and his call is two things, humility and repentance. Humility and repentance. Let's look in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to read the whole passage, then we'll circle back around and look at a community at war with itself. Ready? Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Here's his call, humility and repentance. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. I want to pray just for a moment. Lord, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for Your Spirit within us that is fighting and working to unite us. So we pray, Lord, that you would also illuminate us, that we would hear a call or a next step, that we would not just hear about humility and repentance, but that by the end of our time tonight, we would be so awake to you that we might hear those places you're calling us to step out of friendship with the world and into, again, friendship with you and others. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So what we've just read is the climax of all the issues that James has addressed in the first three chapters of his letter. And this is so crucial for us in this time, in this season, when we look at James, because if we are trying to live into our name, and if we are trying to reflect more and more in this room, all the rooms beyond these walls, and that is a room that looks more multi-ethnic, more multi-generational, more multi-social, more multi-anything, what the enemy would love more than anything is to get in and break up the bond of peace that the Holy Spirit has provided with us. What the enemy would love and what we would love if we don't keep the gospel of peace central is to break up the bond of peace that the Holy Spirit has given us. And so it's why we've got to stand on this gospel of peace. It's why he just said at the end of chapter 3, peacemakers who sow peacefully will reap a harvest of righteousness. It's why we've got to stand on the gospel of peace so we let all those other disagreements kind of fall in line behind the central peace And that is that Jesus Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, has reconciled the world to God, and we can find life in his kingdom and life eternal. Everything else falls in line behind Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of peace. Churches get really messed up when they put that somewhere behind, and we want to talk more about how we baptize, who's a leader, who's preaching, or what color the carpet is. And we see in James this full-throttle chaos. And so James begins this chapter with the question that says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And what you need to read behind the scenes is, you guys are a bunch of fighters and quarrelers. Have you ever woke up and said, why is this happening? He gives the answer immediately. It's back up on the screen. He says, these desires that war within you. Now, when we hear the word desires, if you're like me when I first read this, I'm thinking of a sexual or lustful desire. Because in our culture, that word desire typically is like, I desire this, right? You turn into Pepe Le Pew, who smells the perfume of the little, right, the other skunk. Was it a skunk or a cat? Skunk. So, I feel like these desires are enticing us. But here in this context, that word desire that is causing the fights and quarrels is not a sexual urge or a lust. It is a lust for power and influence. 
It's a lust for power and influence. So what James has been talking about, if you look back in chapter 3, even if you kind of scan those words, if you've got your Bible open, he's calling out these teachers who's, who's using their tongue to set the forest of the church ablaze. And these teachers and these other people who are stirring up gossip and division because they're finding this well of wisdom that leads to division, not peace, like we looked at last week. And what you see is these teachers, who are jockeying for position, trying to get a leg up and influence in the community. Now, if you're struggling to kind of put this into today's context, have you ever seen in your job someone who has a lust for power? Yes. How many of you have seen the television show The Office, The, the American Office, There is a character who is one of the greatest characters of all characters. His name is Dwight Schrute. Dwight Schrute is the guy that you've met, if you've been around on this earth long enough, in offices or team settings, who gets a little bit of responsibility and authority, and all of a sudden he's kicking everybody out and he wants the conference room for his office and he's the black dark lord to impose his reign over the whole office. This is Dwight Schrute. This is Dwight Schrute. And what Dwight Schrute does is he gets a little bit of authority, he gets a little bit of control, and he wants to impose his will on the others. And so what happens in this television show, The Office, and what's happened in your office or your family, is when this happens, people start to go to the break room, and these cliques begin to form. They say, can you believe this, dude? And so what happens when this clique forms is two or three people maybe friends with a Dwight, and they say, what are you talking about? So then they break off over here and they say, man, can you believe these people? I'm glad that Dwight is finally putting his foot down and making things happen around here. So you begin to have these cliques form, and then you know the rest of the story. So what's happening in the Christian community is Christians being mean to one another, trying to put their ways and their motives and their ideas above the other. And so this division happens. And the other desire, the other kind of nuance to this word is a desire for control. And the place that I hate to see this is in marriages. Have we seen this in marriages when, when there's this constant just jockeying and you're just trying to impose? And a lot of times what happens is one person has an expectation on the other and the other person has an expectation on the other and they're unrealistic and then they become unmet and you just have years and years wearing down the other just trying to impose your will and your expectations on the other and then finally it just blows up. Because marriage was not designed to be one over the other, but as Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit one to another as you submit to Christ. And it's not that these expectations and that these desires should be butting against each other. It's that there should be this mutual dance in which sometimes this person says, hey, what about this? And that person says yes. And then the next time he says, hey, what do you think about this? And she says this. And it's this mutuality, this mission, and it's the same in our community. It's why I said last week at every level of leadership in the neighborhood church, we've been really intentional about making it team-centered. Because sometimes, most times, I need to submit to Bud, and I'm already practicing submitting to Kathy when she comes on officially in March. Because there's just this way of Christ and Trinity and relationship when we 
submit and say, you know what? My desire for power and control will not override my command to love you as myself. Or in Philippians 2, Christ, who was the very form and equal and was God, he did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited. That is, lorded over with power and control, but instead he made himself what? Nothing. And he took the form not of the assistant to the regional manager, Dwight Schrute. He took the form of a servant. And he's the one who washes feet rather than puts his feet on others. And so, of course, James is getting at it. He says, why are you fighting? It's because you've got these people that are trying to squash people, not come underneath them. The way of Christ is always a power under someone, not a power over. The way of Christ looks at a person, your neighbor, your family, and you don't try to come over them, you try to come under them, and that is all the difference. And so, of course, this community is in chaos, and the consequences are two that James grabs for whoever he's writing to. The first one is even violence. Look with me back in verse 2. You desire, you want this power and you control, but you don't have. So you kill. And so the question that every scholar brings to this passage is, does he mean literally kill somebody? And I thought, surely not. And so most of them say that in James's day, it wasn't unheard of for religious zealots to say in the name of God, I'm right, you're wrong, and therefore it is my holy and righteous duty to just send you quickly packing where you're already headed, and that is death. But then I got to thinking, you know, church history unfortunately is actually littered with people who are killing in the name of Christ. Earlier I mentioned this Anabaptism. We are kind of a sort of Anabaptist church. And why I say kind of sort of is because we're not the neighborhood Anabaptist church. Rather, it's a flavor of theology that found its origins in the 1500s. And in the 1500s, something really massive in church history happened, and that's this. It was called the Protestant Reformation. So there was only one church for a long time, and that was the Catholic Church. And then Martin Luther came, and he nailed some uh, disagreements or discrepancies he saw on the door, and then it split. So you had the Catholic Church and then the Protestant Church. And out of the Protestant Church, you had a group of guys who were gathering together organically in a home for prayer in, uh, in uh, Europe in the winter. And they said, you know what? I believe that to be a Christian is not just to belong to a church and to have been baptized as a baby into it. I believe to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. And I believe when I read the Scripture, I see a lot of people choosing to follow Jesus, and then they get baptized as grown-ups. So they said, right here and now, let's go to this frozen lake over here, and I want you to baptize me. And so it set off this movement that began to take root and take Jesus' words seriously. Not that the Catholics didn't take Jesus' words seriously. They did. Not that the Lutheran or Presbyterian churches didn't take Jesus' words seriously. They did. But the Anabaptists said, no, no, we're going to live as though the Sermon on the Mount was legit. And we're going to really try to do this. So we're not going to take up arms and swords. And, and we believe that baptism is for adults and those who follow Jesus. And so they got the name Anabaptists because that word Anna, stay with me, means re. And that's so crucial. They didn't like the name 
Anabaptist because they said, no, this is my very first baptism. I didn't know what was happening when I was two days old. I couldn't feed myself, much less know what I'm doing getting baptized. But what happened was the other Protestant church and the other Catholic church said, no, 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 no. What you're doing is you are rebaptizing, and when you rebaptize, what happens is you are making a break with your first baptism, and in your first baptism, that was your birth certificate into the state and the church. Because there was the Roman Catholic Church and there was the Lutheran Church in Germany and the Presbyterian Church in Switzerland. And so you have these state churches. And so the Anabaptists said, no, 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 our allegiance is not just to a state. It's to the king and the kingdom. And so, yeah, we're kind of doing this separate and apart because we don't believe the church and state should really preside equally. So what happened was, and here's my point, the Anabaptists were drowned, burned at the stake, tortured, and beheaded from both the Catholics and the other Protestants in the name of Jesus because they baptize as adults. So when I was thinking about this, I said, surely we have evolved beyond that, right? And I think about all the disagreements in the name of Jesus, and then I think about this week, I I saw an old documentary about Christians who are pro-life killing abortionists. Y'all have heard these stories pop up in the last 20 or so years, which is ironic because if they're pro-life, they're pro-life for all the babies that they're saving, but they're, but they're not pro the life of the guy who needs to repent. So they don't give him a chance to repent, they just kill him because they disagree. So to get back to the text, you don't have power and influence. Your, your way, your mode is not winning out, and so you kill. And so then you see the parallel there. You covet but you don't get it, so you quarrel and fight. I mean, this is what happens with Emma and Nora. When they have a toy that the other one wants, you don't get it, so you're going to fight for it. This is what's going on for power and control, and it could even resort to violence. So this is a community that's in chaos. And so verse 2 simply illustrates this, all right? Because I don't want y'all running out killing people, okay? Verse 2 simply illustrates this. When you put your desire to win an argument, When you put your desire to get a leg up over that person that you work with or this or that or the other, when you put your desire to manipulate or force your expectations on another person before your command to love your neighbor as yourself or even better than yourself, what you're doing is partnering with a way that is not Christ, but you're actually working against him and the unity and the spirit in this place, in your family, in your co-workers. So verse 2 illustrates the dangerous, dangerous depths that we can take if we put any of these things above our command to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the first consequence we see was violence. And then the, the next consequence we see, y'all see this progression with me? He's, he's also going to say another consequence is you, you're not going to get your prayers answered. And, and the reason why you're not going to get your prayers answered is because you're asking for what you don't have. I don't have influence. I'm powerless. Help me, help me, help me, help me. So you say, God, give me power. Give me influence. I want to be a leader. I want to do this. I wish they would see my way. And God is not going to give it to you. Because what does he say in verse 3 at the end of it? You, you ask with wrong motives. And so what happens is you might spend it, you spend all your requests as if God's a vending machine that only exists to give you exactly what you want when you want it. 
Oh, well, I've never done that. Oh, dude, I do it every week. And so what it looks like for me is this. God, why aren't you answering my prayer? And so, you know, part of it, what James says here is, you got to check your motives. And then the, the other thing I want to say is, as we go to this next slide, here are some things I want to venture to guess because you may be reading this and saying, man, he must not be answering my prayers because my motives are all shot. I want you to tell you that is one reason that James gives. That is not all the reasons. So just so you don't get stuck, and just so you don't think that you're always just asking with the wrong motives, let's go to the next slide, and I'm going to venture a couple guesses as to why your prayers may be gone unanswered so you don't get stuck thinking, well, I don't have, you know, because I'm asking with wrong motives. Well, the other thing that James says, and this is not on this list, that we just read in verse 3 is you don't have because you don't ask. And this is what I think about too. I remember when I was in college and I was talking to my friend about this problem with another person I had. And I was just running his ear all into the ground for like an hour about this, that, and the other. And he says, dude, wait, have you prayed about this? And I realized that there's this impulse within me and I think a lot of us that we would love to talk to everybody else about our problems but God. And we just read Psalm 27, and we read Psalm 66 at, at the beginning. And if you read any of the Psalms, you read them getting low down and dirty and putting all their cards on the table with God. They just put it all out there. You have permission to lay it all out there with God. You can snot cry. You can scream. Your pastor is giving you permission to scream at God. He can take it. And if you don't believe me, don't just look at the Psalms. Look at Job. But sometimes our prayers aren't answered because there's just so many variables. God's will may be better than what you're even asking for. The second thing is humanity's free will. I was asking, oh man, this person, this person, this person. You know what God won't do is steamroll that person into being something they're not willing to repent and partner with God about. You with me? God's timing, God's timing. He must know sometimes better than we do when we want what we want. I think this is crucial too. Unseen realities, circumstantial and spiritual. There's this funky passage in Daniel about how the archangel Michael came to Daniel and said, oh, 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 Daniel, I was trying, but dude, I got delayed by the prince of Persia. And you're just sitting there like, what? I thought this was about the lion's den. But he was this angel saying that he was delayed by these demonic forces. And he said, Daniel, sorry, dude, but there is just a whole world and functionality that we cannot see that's going on behind the scenes. But know that God is always at work. But there are unseen realities. These spiritual forces at work. And the second thing is circumstantial. And that's this. We can be praying and praying and praying. And what God might be doing is setting up and laying the road and laying the pavement and laying the foundation for something that will happen in God's time. But you want it now. But if you got it now, it would be this unfinished mess. God's got to work it out. And then finally, you know, this is just where it's at. This is kind of with what we just read in verse 3. Another reason it might not be answered is disobedience or doubt. See James 1, 6-8, he talks about that double-minded that we're going to look at again in a minute. And then at the end, in chapter 5, verse 5, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, 14-15, sometimes you're just disobeying and doubting. And he says, you know what, just like I say to my girls, you know, and I'm not going to give that to you right now. Because you've got to kind of get your stuff together. 
That's just, this is, these are all kind of scriptural glimpses at the myriad variables as to why sometimes our prayer goes unanswered. I just wanted to take that brief little aside so that we could just not get stuck on when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. That's one answer, not all the answers. Because the context here is these people trying to get a leg up, but he's going to say, now you adulterous people. You with me in verse 4? You adulterous people. He's using a prophetic, big gun kind of word because every time, and especially in the Old Testament, our relationship between God and His people is spoken of as a marriage, which is an exclusive, intimate relationship. And He says, when you're acting like this and spending all your time and energy trying to cause divisions, what you're doing is you're stepping out on God, who's your first love, and you're stepping into a relationship with another. And here's the two friends in the mix. And I need two volunteers to help me so we can all be sure that we're awake. Because uh, I know I preached a long time last week. So I just want to make sure that y'all are still up and ready. So I need two volunteers. So, so I'm looking at Mark and Tay. Come on, Antaeus. Come on, man. He was doing this. This is why I picked him because he started doing this. All right. I need you to stand right here. So here's what's going on, and we're going to have these verses on the screen. He's talking about these adulterous people, and he says, do you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? So here's the thing. We've got to unpack what James is talking about with friendship. It's not just a Facebook friendship where we can be buddies. Like we go to lunch, and we hang out, and whatever. What he's after is this whole culture in the ancient Near East with James where friendship was a serious thing. So will you be my friend? Okay, will you be my friend? Yes. So friendship was something that was bigger than just a Facebook status. What friendship meant, and this is going to get real friendly. You ready? We're going to link arms, and it means, look at this. We're friends. This is a serious thing, and we're going to walk this way. I want you to walk toward this wall. Friendship, don't skip, Pastor Bud says. It means that there is a mutuality or a commonality of purpose and direction and status, okay? So hang out here for a minute. So friendship is basically we are on the same track. Friendship was like a kind of partnership in which you didn't go be friends with somebody you disagreed with. You shared a worldview, you shared a purpose, you shared a commonality, and everybody in James's day understood this. So what's going on then, if you just hang here, friend, is I say, hang on, friend, Antaeus, I need to go and see this other friend, but this other friend, Mark, has a completely different, yes, there you go, look, he just, he's ready, man. What a good friend he is. So I want you to walk toward this wall. So what, what it would be is, in the ancient Near East, if Mark's friends should be my friends because we're linked, we're partnered, we're together, we're on the same track. And similarly, Mark's enemies, which would be Antaeus on the opposite end of the spectrum, way over there, should be my enemy. So what James is illustrating then is when you are in this position where you're First love and first allegiance is to Jesus Christ. When you said, Jesus, you are Lord, which means you get all of me. When he says that Jesus is Lord, it means your tongue, your speech, how you spend money, how you relate to others, how you uh, work in this world with your body, sexually, physically, what you put into your body. Everything comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And so what James is after is he's saying, if you're running around and you're treating others not like Christ, if you're running around talking and tearing down people not like Christ, if you're running around and being prejudiced against others uh, not like Christ, if you're running around doing all this thing, it's as if what you've done is you're trying to have one foot here. I want you to come here, Mark, and I want you to come here, Antaeus. It's as if you've got one foot here with Jesus, and you've got another foot here with the world. And what happens is when they start to go their own directions, if you walk to the wall, what is happening? You're in this tension. You're in this struggle. And so I don't want to insult your intelligence here, but I want you to see the drastic picture that he's saying because he says this is not so. And he says that God, don't you know that he is jealously working within your spirit to break the pattern of this world and to follow only God. And this is what it looks like when you repent. Because when you repent, when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, you are following the way of the world, and the way of the world's end is destruction and death. And so if you're tracking along and being a friend of the world, you're spending money like the world spends, you're treating others poorly like the world treats others, you're looking out for only self, you're sexually immoral, you're just out of control, and and the further you get, the further you get, the easier it gets. And so he says, if you're going to continue to be a friend of the world, you're going to be put further and further at enmity as an enemy of God because you're going in this way. So when Jesus says repent, when Peter says repent in Acts chapter 2, he says save yourself from this crooked generation. Get off the path of the world and get back on the path with God. And so however far you are down the road of the world, to repent is a change of mind that says, oh wait, and this has happened to each one of us. We have a moment when the veil is lifted and we see where we're headed and we see the end game is destruction and death and depression and despair and and just our bodies falling apart, our heart is ripped out, and we say, whoa, and so you have a change of mind about where you're headed and it leads to, watch, A change in direction. To repent has built into it the word change. And it means a change of direction. So thank you, friends, Antaeus and Mark. You can have a seat. Y'all give them a hand. But the idea then is if you are so far down the road, his call to these people then in verses 7 to 10 is a call to humility and to turn back to God because he quotes Proverbs 3.34. You can write that down. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He opposes the proud because the proud have opposed God. And that word there, oppose, is like kind of struggling against them. And doesn't it make sense when we're so far down this road and my mind is set on me, 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 what we're doing is we're continuing down here and we're saying, God, I don't need you. But in humility, humility is when you consider the other over yourself, when you consider that maybe God's end and God's life has freedom and joy, when you humble yourself and get on his path, what does he do? He shows favor to the humble. If you jump back down in your Bibles to verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will what? Lift you up. Why? 
Verses 7 to 10 is the call to get off the world's train, to get back onto God's train, because when you empty yourself before the Lord, you see that there is way more freedom with Him than at the end of that road down there. So sin is not just that, oh, I blew it and I feel bad. No, sin is just practicing destruction. And it's practicing a way that is not our citizenship and our status that has been afforded to us in the power of Christ. In Ephesians, in that series, in chapter 1, he says, you've been raised with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, he says, don't you know that you died with Christ, you were buried with Him in baptism, and you were raised to new life so that the power of sin, look, might be done away with. So every time we try to come over here and be friends with the world, we're rejecting God's way and we're going back to the chains that He already broke. Because it feels good and it feels nice. And what He says then is, no, no, no. No. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Turn around and say, I have been jockeying for my expectations, my way, my pleasure, my control, my, 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 my. Let me, by God's grace, change my song to you, 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 you. When I was a teenager, I was convinced that God's way was the way of no fun. And the more I've walked with Jesus down this road, full of bumps and bruises, and I'm constantly running back, I find that His way is not a way of buzzkill and no joy. It is the way of full joy and freedom. And the further you walk with Jesus, it's like the old hymn. The things of earth on that other path grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace because there is not one thing that is better than the intimacy and love and acceptance even with all your faults and hurts and hang-ups. There's not one thing better than Jesus Christ and His presence in your life. And I will stand there and say that till the day I die by His grace. But the struggle is is that I won't live it all the time. And so what we do then is we submit ourselves to God, and when we submit ourselves to God, we also realize that His mercy is new every morning. So when you blow it, and tonight you're headed down this road, guess what? Tomorrow His mercy is new. In fact, His mercy is new right now, and no matter how far you've gone down the road, as soon as you turn around, you don't have to make a long journey back to the middle like I did. You just have to turn around, and He's right there closer than you ever thought. Oh, I got to fix myself. I got to clean up. Well, you do. But he's not going to do it with his arm over you saying, look at this mess. No, he's going to get down because Jesus looks like the one who washes the feet. That tells you to get on your hands and knees with a toothbrush and lick it up. The Holy Spirit, it's in His kindness that He leads us to repentance. If it looks kind, if it looks bringing us along together, and it looks like power under, lifting us up, that's Christ. If it looks like guilt and shame and power over, it looks like you're friends with the wrong guys. So the second thing He says in this call to humility and repentance, if we go to the next slide just to help you kind of see the bullet points, is resist the devil. Because the devil, when you're far down that road, will want nothing more than to keep you there. 
and to keep you down and to say in your head those narratives that say, I am not good enough. He wants you to keep playing that tape in your head that says, I can never quit this. He wants you to keep thinking, they don't deserve me. I will never amount to anything. God doesn't love me. He hates me. He said against me. But he says, resist the devil. And here's why. Because the devil's a coward and he will flee from you. Because as First John reminds us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so that word resist is a military battle type of word. And you can imagine like the Lord of the Rings when they're, okay, I just lost some of you. Stay with me. And then the second one, stay with me. And they're at Helm's Deep, stay with me. And it's this defensive posture, stay with me. And you've got all these people coming after him. And what they're doing is they're resisting, they're resisting, they're resisting. And what he's saying is through prayer and getting back with God, submitting yourself to God, what you're doing is you're resisting him and ultimately he's going to retreat. Why? Because when you claim the power of Jesus' blood on the cross, he realizes that that same power that on the cross, as Paul says in Colossians 2, he has defeated and disarmed the principalities, the rulers and the authorities that wanted to make a claim on your life, but the cross has dismantled every bit of their power. And so what happens is, when you remind him, it wasn't just that I was buried with Christ in baptism and his death, I was raised again in new life, so he has no claim on you because even when your body goes into the ground, God ain't going to waste that and he's going to raise you in power and, and he's going to give you a physical body that attests to the spiritual reality right now today that you are seated and raised with Christ in the heavenlies. So if you're seated and raised with Christ in the heavenlies, if you've been dead to sin, dead to death, dead to the devil, and you are raised only to live life with Christ, what can he do? He can hurt you, he can come at you, he can try to feed you those things, but the power of the cross and the resurrection says that ultimately death will die, the devil's end is in principle now and in finality then, and so you can rest assured that the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection is more powerful than any of the darkness and evil and any of the forces because not one thing, not height, nor depth, nor angel, nor demon, nor principalities or powers, not one thing can separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. So resist. Submit yourself to God. And then he says another promise, not just that the devil will flee to you, but then you're allowed to come near to God and what? God is so far from me. Where is he? God is so far from me. Have you come near to him? Have you cried out to him? And, and sometimes i got to tell you, no, you're not going to hear God. I wish I could tell you that it's just so matter of fact and it's just a, a causes B. I wish as a pastor I could tell you that. But I will tell you this, even if you can't hear him, if you draw near to him, he is closer than you could ever imagine. I just... Mm. This is almost a spoiler alert, so I won't say that what movie it was, but there is a, a movie that I saw, may or may not have been recently, in which this person experiences a great distance and time apart from God, and he's just like, dude, where have you been? It's been years and years and years and years and years, and you could almost hear this voice after years and years and years says, I was right with you. I was there. I was there. 
And for all these reasons that you couldn't understand in that moment, I was there. My wife and I are fond of saying to people who are grieving and coming out of this and saying, why did God do this? I said, we don't believe God did that. Because that doesn't look and reflect the character of Jesus, who's the image of the invisible God. I don't believe that God did that, but I do believe that God is weeping with you, and he will not waste it, and he will not let it be the last end of it. He will renew it. He will redeem it. He will resurrect it. And we don't understand on this side why this all happens, but he ain't going to waste it. And he will not let death get the final say. He won't let evil get the final say. And we just don't understand it. But we know that Romans 8.38 reminds us that in all things he's working together for the good and that he knows the end game. If the end down there here with friendship with the world is death and destruction, I promise you and I will stake my life on it that the end of the train that leads to the kingdom come in fullness is nothing but life and joy and peace and you will never cry another tear. But now, as we get back into this text, as James is calling us to repentance, there is a time for mourning He says to wash your hands and purify your hearts. And that's really a way of saying there's got to be this holistic change. It's not just what you do. It's kind of let's check your heart again. And he says when you kind of realize the stink and and danger and, and, and gunk of sin, when you wash it, there is a space for grieving, mourning, wailing. There is a space to let your laughter about what was so fun over here. There is a space when the veil gets lifted and you see, man, this is not the life I was promised. This is not the way I was promised. There is a time to turn your laughter into mourning. And really, that's just acknowledging the consequence of your brokenness. Acknowledging the consequence of your sin. But that's just the doorway. That's not the room you live in. I, I, I promise you, I remember as a, a child in, in youth camp, on Thursday night, man, when they'd really be putting it on you, and I would cry and cry and cry, and I would make all kinds of bargains and barters with God, and I felt like garbage. I believe that God wants to take even our emotional life and say, you know, I see you're broken here, but I I major in putting brokenness back together. So I think he allows us to to wail. I think there's space for mourning and grieving, but that's that's not the pattern of our life. Finally, verse 10, to close it out, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will lift it up. So just some questions as we close to maybe walk away with. You know, What do we need to repent of? That's the last one there. Is there something in which we find ourselves being pulled and drifted? And so what in his kindness can he lead you to turn back and say, okay, God, it hurts, but but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to take this next step toward you and I'm going to try to walk with you. What do you need to repent of? And maybe has God revealed a next step for you? in a difficult relationship or situation? Is there something he's been trying to get a word in edgewise? Is there a step toward another person in humility and repentance? You said, you know, why are we fighting and quarreling? What, what are my desires here? And what does humility 
not thinking too highly of yourself, but considering others over yourself, what does it look like in your closest relationships this week? Friendship with God and others starts with humility and repentance. So as we close, I read from an author and advocate for racial reconciliation this week, a man named Leroy Barber. And for Barber, this friendship, through his whole book, this friendship with others, the book is called Embrace. And it's a radical vision for God's shalom or God's peace. He says, this embrace of difference and enemies always starts with repentance, and it's always going to look humble. And so I was like, man, this is awesome because this is lining up what James says. So I want to close with this quote. As you have those questions ringing in your ears and remembering that for James, it was in the context of a community at war. Leroy Barber says this in his book, Embrace. Community requires us to commit to stay in relationships even when they're not comfortable. It means pushing ourselves to be comfortable with outsiders until they become trusted friends. I love that. It involves living through the awkward moments and misunderstandings and allowing them to move us deeper into relationship. Look at this. Rather than using them as excuses to leave. Leaving a hard relationship has become easy in our society. We leave marriages, work, and even children. This is a major problem. We must learn how to commit through hardship if we are going to overcome our relational breakdowns. All relationships are hard. The difference between the good ones and the ones we leave comes down to our commitment and obedience. Commitment to another person, however they enter our lives, and obedience to Christ in loving others better than ourselves. May we go and do likewise. Father, we're so grateful that you have reconciled the world to yourself through your son, Jesus. We were enemies with you. We were different. We were, we were just lost and on our own way to destruction. But at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for his enemies. He loved his enemies. And he showed us even to the bitter end. So may we through his power in his life, death, and resurrection go and do likewise. In the awkward relationships, in the hard relationships, may we move deeper in in humility and repentance because you have called this church to love their neighbors in our neighborhood, for your kingdom and not ours, for your power and not ours, for your glory and not ours. And we pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Benediction tonight is Hebrews 13, 20-21. Now may the God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, equip you with every good thing to do his will working in us what is pleasing before him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now go in peace.